Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation Capital, a pre-seed venture firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of an idea. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season is sponsored by our friends at Silicon Valley Bank, a member of the FDIC. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. Learn more about Silicon Valley Bank services at svb.com. We're traveling on the road. We've got Alex's setup, which is legit. Um, I'm Nick, a partner at Notation Capital. I'm Alex. And we have... Brad Feld, hanging out in Boulder. Thank you for We're having two guys us. from New York. Indeed, I just learned how to cl- climb up Sanitas. Indeed, we don't know what we're, we don't know, we don't know what we're doing <laughs> here. Someone will have to rescue us at some point. Uh, um, uh, well, thanks so much for 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 um, for having us here. We're we're excited to um, to do this with you. Um, and we were just talking. You've spoken at length about your background in history as a founder and an entrepreneur. So we'd love to spend a little time over the next forty-five minutes talking about. Um, your your experience as a VC, um, raising capital for various funds over the years um, from LPs, and and also um, we know that you're a very active LP, um, both personally and and now through Foundry Foundry Next as well. So we're we're excited to bug you about that. Um, uh, so I guess possibly a good place to start. We don't have to start here, but possibly a good place to start is um uh, is how you began angel investing and how ultimately that became your first venture fund, which I believe was Mobius? Yep. So um, my first company, which was uh, self-funded, we didn't raise any money, I started in 87, was acquired in 1993 by a public company uh, that was called Ameridata Technologies. And uh, we were one of 40 companies that got bought in a three-year period. We were about the seventh that got bought. And the two co-chairmen, a guy named Len Fassler and Jerry Pock, uh, were very, very active, obviously, acquiring businesses. Uh, that happened at the end of 1993. I worked for them for a couple of years. But in the beginning of 1994, just shortly after we were acquired, I started making angel investments with my own money. And these were $25,000 type angel investments. Uh, between 94 and 96, I did 40 of them. Was there a plan? Um, invest in smart people doing yep. software tech that I wanted. Now, I knew absolutely nothing about investing. So, because, and we also hadn't right. uh, taken any money. Um, so it was more me in 1994, I was living in Boston. It was at the basically at the dawn of the commercial internet. My f- very first investment was in a company called NetGenesis. Uh, which ended up going public in '99 was uh, for a short while, you know, worth a billion and change. Um, they were one of the very first internet startups. It was four MIT mm-hmm. undergrads who all graduated as they were starting this company. Um, uh, one of them, the the founding CEO, a guy named Raj Bargava, is an entrepreneur. I've done since since then. We've done eight companies together. Wow. Um, but I I just had this. Uh, interest as I was still working for Ameridata in investing in helping start all these other companies. Again, all, almost all internet related, some of them software focused. Uh, and through that three-year period, 
uh, two things happened. One is I learned an awful lot about investing and I got to work uh, with Len and Jerry who are doing all these acquisitions um, on some of the acquisitions from a technical perspective, but that allowed me to see from a deal perspective how those kinds of deals worked. And they also invested as angels in some of the companies that I was investing as an angel investor. And there were lots of companies coming to them that were not acquisition targets, but were raising money. And so mm. there was a lot of that activity around that. Um, and so you primarily were, were investing in Boston, so locally? No, it was all around oh, the country. Okay. So okay. from the very beginning, I've been a national investor. Uh, when, when I was working for Ameridata, while our office was in Boston, their acquisitions were all over the world. So I ended up spending a fair amount of time traveling when they were doing acquisitions in different places. I was also very early on, after I sold my first company, I joined a board of a company uh, in San Rafael, uh, a company called SBT Accounting Systems. It was the first board I was on. Um, uh, I also had a very broad network that was linked to Seattle, New York, and San Francisco. The Seattle portion was because of Microsoft. My first company had very deep ties into Microsoft. Um, uh, San Francisco, I, for whatever reason, I just had a bunch of friends, a bunch of my MIT friends had gone out there and had a lot of friends out there and different things I did. And then New York because of the Boston, probably the Boston-New York mm. corridor dynamic. And then Ameridata was headquartered in New York, so I spent time with Len and Jerry. Mm, right. uh, they were headquartered in Connecticut, but effectively New York. So, so this chunk of time was a very compressed period for me of essentially three years where I did a bunch of angel investments. I basically took all the money that I'd made from the sale. My wife and I had a, an agreement that I would not get below $100,000 left wow. in the bank. Wow. And I remember getting below $100,000 wow. and thinking, oh, shit, I was wow. like $97,000. You know, like I wrote the $25,000 check and then I'm like, ah. Wow. And uh, uh, fortunately, I had some reasonably quick exits. Mm. Um, and so, you know, in that time period, the money started to build back up. Damn. So you put basically your entire net worth Back, yeah, in, made, back into startups. Yeah, I made a couple million bucks. Wow. In, but I probably, on a net after-tax basis from Ameridata, probably made a million and a half bucks for, from the sale of my first company. And I put almost all of it, we bought a house, and then almost all of the rest of it went back into startups over that chunk of time. And sort of my view was, uh, you know, I'm, I was 28, I could, I'll make more money, and I was right. super excited and interested right. in all these companies. That, by the way, that investment of you know, roughly a million bucks or a million and a half bucks into startups has been very lucrative for sure. me. So early on in my own personal investing career, I got the experience of lots of zeros, right? Plenty of those 40 companies were worth zero. I got my money back, made a little bit of money, maybe made a 2X on, on a couple of them. Uh, three of them were worth more than 100 times my investment. Wow. Right, so I had the experience very early on of having the experience and understanding the difference between zero, I like to say between zero X and 100 X yeah. in the context of being a seed or early stage investor. Um, just to finish this part of the story, Amy and I moved to Boulder, my wife's name is Amy, uh, and I moved to Boulder in, in fall of 1995. Um, we, didn't, we knew one person out here, he moved away three months later. So I didn't move out here for any reason other than we decided to move to Boulder. We'd been here before. We like Colorado, both like Colorado. She was from Alaska. We got here. She actually said to me one day, hey, I'm moving to Boulder. You can come with me if you want. Um, and we were married. So that was yeah. and yeah, that yeah, was yeah. her form of an yeah. invitation. 
Um, and I was already, you know, crisscrossing the country. So that, you know, that was logical. And six months after moving here, uh, we knew this was it for the duration. So we didn't move here for work. We didn't move here for family. We moved here and chose a deliberate place we wanted to live. Um, and I continued sort of in this time frame. Uh, in 96, after I moved here, I ended up connecting with uh, SoftBank, which is a large Japanese company that had right. a small group in the U.S. at the time, a couple of people who were making investments in what was being called digital media, which ended up being internet stuff, which is, a, you know, I would say a superset of digital media, although people that are digital media people would probably argue with that. But I, I've always thought of the internet as the top of it and the digital media yeah. as a yeah. subset of it. Um, and they put together... It was a very small team. They wanted to stay very small. Had a lot of capital. SoftBank was both buying companies when they bought Ziff Davis and Comdex mm. and a few others. They wanted to put a bunch of companies into startups. So this small team created a group of affiliates who basically, you know, we didn't get paid anything, but we got paid on a deal-by-deal -deal basis when we invested in the companies. Uh, on so Angelus, on Angelus Syndicates, 1996. Yeah, before Angelus <laughs> yeah, Syndicates right, right. And the affiliates are names that a lot of people will recognize. So one of the affiliates uh, was, was me. Um, one of the affiliates was Fred Wilson. Wow. And one of the that. affiliates was Jerry Colonna. And Jerry and Fred formed a firm called Flatiron right. Partners, which uh, SoftBank and Chase Capital funded. Right. And then the last affiliate was Rich Levendov, who's now at Avalon. And so, wow! I never knew that. The four of us, wow. plus then really the initial team at SoftBank when I got involved was Ron Fisher, uh, who's still at SoftBank, uh, Charlie Lax, and um, Gary Rochelle. Um, that team, the SoftBank team, then started to grow. At some point along the way, the the there was essentially uh, the classic capital constraint. So SoftBank had said, here's a pile of money we want you to invest. We started investing that money really quickly. And then one day SoftBank didn't have any mm. more money to give us, mm. even though they'd said, we want you to invest all this money. So as early stage investors, we ended up in this extraordinarily awkward position of having about 50 portfolio companies, all early stage that needed follow-ons. I think we had about you know 10 term sheets out. Wow. And... We had, you know, this entity, this team had no money. So we had to sort of wow. navigate through that. SoftBank found us enough money to fund those companies and to do what we needed to do. But a core group of us ended up deciding to start what was originally called SoftBank Technology Ventures that evolved into Mobius Venture Capital. Mm. Oh. And I was one of the four people that started that. So my foray into venture capital was completely accidental. I was not deliberate in my own thinking about joining a firm. I right. never envisioned myself as a VC. I was acting as, I was still doing as I was an affiliate, all of my own angel deals. And if SoftBank wanted to invest, great. I had some economics on their investment. Hmm. But then one day, uh, sort of I found myself in this position where the four of us went out and raised a fund. And that first fund, which we raised in 1997, was a $300 million fund. And that was as... Maybe your first time ever raising external capital for anything, right? Yeah, I mean, I Considering had, you'd never raised for your own company. It was the first time I'd raised external capital where I was a, a principal and yeah. not an investor. So one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast is because we raised our first fund a couple of years ago. We're navigating the LP community as lots of other VCs earlier on in their careers are navigating 
the LP community. Um, we're students of venture history to a certain degree. So like, I'd love to hear a little bit about what the, maybe the LP community looked like when you were raising Mobius and how you found these folks and uh, how you pitched them and maybe a couple things you learned along the way. Sure. So our, we raised three funds uh, at Mobius, a fund in 1997, $300 million fund, a fund in 1999, $600 million fund, and a fund in 2000, which was originally a $1.5 billion wow. fund, which we then cut back voluntarily uh, to $1.25 billion. Wow. There was a short period of time, maybe a 12-month period, where VCs, after the internet bubble started to collapse, right. um, VCs generally voluntarily to try to build good karma with their LPs, cut their fund sizes. Mm -hmm. Most of it was under the rationalization of we don't think we can put this money to work fast enough, so we raised too much money. I think much of it was more, um, you know, we just had this massive dislocation of value when the internet bubble collapsed, and it was kind of like this is a gesture to our LPs to try to yeah. build some karma points. Um, that first fund... Uh, the fundraising between those three funds were very different. The first fund took us basically a year to raise. Um, the second fund took us about two months to raise. And the third fund took us about two weeks to raise. So um, in that first fund, wow. what it, you know, where we were, we were four, you know, four guys, and we were guys. Um, the LP community in general uh, looked not that dissimilar than today's LP community on a big dimension. So there were a series of um, university endowments, pensions. Um, they weren't, I don't think they were called fund of funds at the time, mm -hmm. but they were investment banks who right. had Advisors vehicles. Right. And there were some fund of fund type vehicles or, or organizations that aggregated capital together and, and looked like that. Um, and then there were a bunch of high net worth family office uh, investors, including some who had been investing in venture for a long time and had made a lot of money investing in venture and were well known, right? So it wasn't the random wealthy mm -hmm. person who had exited that now had a family office, but yet the family office for a wealthy, typically family or founder of a company, but that had been investing in venture going back to the you know, 80s, 70s and 80s and early 90s. And, and then individual, you know, people who had a lot of money who for some reason were in the stratosphere or in the, in, the, in the universe of who you interacted with. For our first fund, we hired a placement agent. Um, there were a couple of the investment banks at the time that had placement agents uh, for venture funds. Mm. Um, ours was, we, we hired DLJ, which ultimately got bought by uh, Credit Suisse at some right. point. And um, they had a very highly regarded uh, VC fundraising group at the time, and or placement agent at the time, and you know they had a series of 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 customers, right? Uh, th that they dealt with, right. a series of investors they dealt with. They had a, a long list of names of traditional investors in VC. Um, so the that, Sequoias and well, not not the the funds, right? But you know, ah, right. they, they the, had the this long list of LPs, sure. right? That were traditional investors yep. in those funds, and they had relationships with them in the same way that a today's investment bank and then as well had relationships with 
hedge funds, you know, when you go public and you want to place your stock with institutional investors, whether it's a hedge fund or mutual fund or whatever. Um, Mm. And then they had a retail business or relationship that, look, it wasn't retail like we talk about retail brokerage, but it was individual, right? So they had a whole bunch of people who had accounts at, at their investment bank that they aggregate into a pool and mm. so they ended up being an LP through that mm-hmm. pool of capital. So th- that universe, um, I think probably the biggest shift in that universe from where I sit, you know, 20 some years later is, or 20 years later is international LPs feel mm-hmm. like there's more of them and they're more accessible and tuned in, although some very, very large historical international LPs existed. It feels like there's more of that. And the other is, I would say, the structural dynamics around the fund of funds um, has shifted a lot, and there's been lots of ebbs and flows. And you know, today's universe of fund of funds, I think, looks qu- quite different than in the late '90s uh, in terms of you know who's running them, what they look like, which ones are the marquee ones versus right. everything else. And then you know, for us, it was physical private placement memo. Long, right, you know, right. long document. Right. It was, you know, lots of meetings, and we were pitching ourselves as the first internet-focused fund, uh, and we were effectively that. And people would look at us and say, "What's an internet?" <laughs> right. So it was a really wow. challenging pitch. And then they sort of go in and say, "Okay, so what's your, you know, what's your investment history?" Well, we've been doing this for a year or two, and we've made, you know, hundreds of investments. <laughs> Right. Like it was such right. an irrational starting point. Right. Even though if you looked at the underlying investments, they were incredible because of our timing at the entry and the beginning of the internet. Right. I, I think you've spoken a little bit about this, but you know, after that fund three, you took some time. Which by the way, we called fund six. Because it was fund three, four, five, six <laughs> combined. So, <laughs> so, so we, our very first fund was fund four. Okay. Because, you know, okay. if you name it Fund 4, it's a lot more impressive than if you name it Fund 1. That's a good tip. Um, and <laughs> That's a really good tip. You know, rule number one. Right. And um, uh, it, it had turned out that there were three previous vehicles that were SoftBank-related vehicles. Mm. So, you know, there it was the fourth vehicle, but it was really functionally the first mm. f- fund that this mm. team was investing. By the way, it's not that dissimilar to what you see today when you have... Uh, you know, you raise a $2 million seed fund or you put $2 million of your own money into companies and you put it and you call that fund one. Mm. So fund two is then that right. next thing, right? Like it, same kind of thing, which, you know, one of the reasons with Foundry why we labeled our funds by, by vintage year, which I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I think was something that USV started and, and was the first, the first time I ever noticed by vintage year was the USV 2004 fund. Mm. Everything before that was a number. Mm. When we raised our first foundry fund, we called it Foundry 2007 because we thought it was much more helpful to tie it to the vintage year than it was to tie it to the number of things you'd raised and do hand waving around right. that. Yeah, that's that's smart. We should, um, when LPs say come back to us on fund two, we should just relabel it <laughs> in the future. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about raising that first foundry fund, especially in light of some of the challenges at Mobius. Who did you, which LPs did you go approach first? Was it the same LPs as Mobius? 
Um, how did you think through and refine the pitch over time? Yeah, the first, um, I would say the first fund, the 2007 fund, um, I like to say that it took us nine months. I think Jason likes to say that it took us 15 months, and he's probably more right than I am. Mm. Um, and, and in 2006, initially, um, I, I, I probably had a fantasy, or I, I probably, I had a fantasy uh, that there was capital that would come from people I had a relationship with. Right. And some of those were LPs, and some of those were um, other VCs who I had a close relationship with, who had, in different ways and in different points in time, indicated to me that you know they had LPs who would love to put money right. behind something I'd do. And you know, I would say we tested that, and we had some conversations in 2006, and at some point in 2006 realized, uh, nope, that's not right. And why? Um, two things. One is, I would say, let's say there were 15 or 20 VCs who said, you know, we want to support you. We, we, we can support you. We can, you know, we've got some LPs that will aim your way. Of that list, there were only two VCs who had uh, material, I'd say there were three VCs that had material recommendations, and there were only two VCs that had any significant amount of capital that came from it. And those were yeah, probably in, in order. Uh, Fred Wilson at USV uh, had a huge impact ultimately hmm. uh, on our, our success of our fundraising. A number of the USV LPs, um, including now our partner Lindell, yeah. uh, were people I met through Fred. And Fred didn't just make soft introductions via email, but he actually would pick up the phone and say, you got to pay attention to these guys you know, I've known you know wow. I've known Brad for a while. Right. I've known the other like there's something special going on here. Pay attention. Uh, the other the second person was Scott Maxwell at OpenView, okay, um, who I had become close friends with. We've not invested together much, but I had become close friends with him because we were both on Microsoft uh, Venture Capital Advisory Board for a number of years, hmm. and we just had a lot of fun sitting in the back of the room heckling Microsoft execs uh, <laughs> a couple of times a year. Uh, and a guy named Dan Lewin ran uh, this big group of sort of Microsoft's um, emerging business team, I think it was called. And and I think Scott and I just felt kindred spirits in terms of uh, dynamics. Scott had started a firm called OpenView after leaving Insight. And two of his LPs, same kind of thing, put, you know, like did more than just soft email, picked up the phone. Hey, I really like this guy. I think he's a really good fit for you, da, da, da. And then the third is, is somebody who I've viewed as a mentor for a long time, a guy named Jack Tankersley, who is one of the original VCs in Colorado. He and a, a guy named Steve Halstead started uh, Centennial Funds in the early 80s, mm. I think 83. And, and, and Jack had, ha, and I had done some things together, and I had, I had really learned a lot about investing from Jack and being a VC from Jack, not emulating him, right, but seeing how he did it, hearing his stories, getting his feedback, doing things with him. And he also, he also made a number of introductions uh, uh, for us. Those, those introductions didn't pan out until really the second wave of our activity in 2007. All the rest of the VCs that I talked to, the best that they would do, the best, the most significant intros I got were introductions to a junior associate at mm. one of their not too important 
VCs. It's very interesting. It didn't wouldn't make me upset or anything. It right. just was kind of I didn't quite understand what was going to happen. Is that because they were threatened or no they just yeah no idea. Saw, Never called yeah. anybody on it. I, I nobody owed me any introductions at all. Like it wasn't like I had an entitlement to anything. It just was. I had this expectation that there would be more, and there wasn't. Uh, second. Um, there were probably at the time somewhere between a dozen and 15 Mobius LPs that were still actively investing in venture. So we had a lot of LPs, but many of them decided not to keep investing in venture after the internet bubble for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Um, and of those, it turned out zero of them invested in Foundry. Wow. We Just because them, of their previous experience. Yeah, we gave them all an opportunity. We didn't put any pressure on any of them. And I had a sense that there would be some. Right. Zero. Um, wow. And it turned out that only one person who was not at the same firm but was at now a new firm um, uh, ended up uh, in investing in us. And, you know, that was nice. But, you know, the, the sort of that landscape. So that was two. And number three was even though I'd had the <coughs> experience in 1997 of raising that first um, Mobius fund, uh, it's the SoftBank fund at the, t- the time, I hadn't really processed um, the dynamics uh, around mm. what the fundraising cycle was going to look like and feel like for a first-time fund. So again, I, I think it was it was a miss on my part of not taking it seriously, but understanding sort of the rigor and focus. So our fundraising, from my frame of reference, I mean, that's a little bit long right. air around it, from my frame of reference, really started in, in the beginning of 2007. Um, uh, Ryan McIntyre and I took 90 meetings mm. uh, in the first uh, three months. Mm. At the end of March, we thought we had two major LPs ready to invest. Uh, and we each had a vacation scheduled for last week of March just to catch our breath. And at that that week, like midweek, when Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, like you get all the news from this stuff on Tuesday, right? Because people right. have their meetings on Monday. Right. It's like entrepreneurs. Right. And uh, on Tuesday, Wednesday, we we were turned down by both of them. And one of them, the LP had approved us, but their consultant turned us down. The consultant basically did a a, a no recommendation even after the very large institution had said they wanted to do it. And then the other one, we were one of three that they were looking at, and it was a fund-to-fund that at the time was a smaller fund-to-fund. They've ended up in our second fund they invested, and they've become a very, very good and close partner. Uh, And they stayed close to us. They could only choose one of the three they wanted to do, and we were not the one of the three. Do you know what the other one was? Um, I do. (laughs) (laughs) No judgment and no comment. Um, uh, And I I hope that it was a lucrative and successful investment. Um, uh, So I remember going away for a week of vacation with my wife, Amy. We go away. We've been doing this for 16 years now. We go away for a week every quarter. No phone, no email, just disconnect. I remember being flattened. Right. Like, I was exhausted. And I'm like, fuck. Yeah. Like, nothing is cooking three months, 90 meetings. Right. <clears throat> we got our first commitment in, in April from AMG Bank, which is a, a local bank that had been investing in venture for a long time. And um, uh, from that, uh, what ended up happening was uh, they found us randomly mm. and they made a commitment very quickly. And they've been a great, great partner. Um, uh, Chris Jacoby is is the, the lead partner there and, and has been a really 
really good friend and, and a big supporter. And then uh, Utimco and Lindell sort of was next in, yep. in May. Uh, of that first 90, 20 passed in the, in the meeting yeah. or immediately after the meeting. And we had people literally at the end of the meeting would say, thank you for coming and right. meeting with us. But, you know, we're not really doing early stage venture. I'm like, why did you take the right. meeting? Right. I don't understand. Right. right. <laughs> uh, uh, which is, you know, fine. Yeah. And then um, all of our LPs that we met with, um, they didn't necessarily pass, but they all deferred and they all ended up passing. And we ended up in that first fund. Uh, again, Lindell committed, Grove Street. Um, I remember I still have it on a, a – I, I kept – uh, all the souvenirs from that trip, business cards, boarding passes. Right. I have a, a, a book of it. And I had a bank deposit slip. And I remember being in a meeting in Seattle and I got a call from um, uh, from Chris Yang at, at uh, Grove Street. Uh, and You must have been super nervous when you pick up the oh, phone, of right? Like, you're like, I, you're like I, stressed I, out. Totally nervous. The yeah. only thing I had nearby was in my, in my pocket that I could write on. So I'm talking on my phone. Uh, was um, an ATM slip that I had crumpled up and stuck in my pocket because I, for some reason, didn't want to like throw it in the trash near the ATM machine. Probably just you know OCD nervousness, and and so I have this crumpled up piece of paper on the back, you know, with the scribbles on it from it, and I I I, I just remember the moment so well because when he committed, the combination of Utimco mm. committing a, a big check and Grove Street committing. It felt like we finally, and we had a few others that were in the mix at that point. Then we had some momentum. Yeah. And over the course of the summer, we essentially, you know, got our commitments, did our diligence process for everybody, uh, did a first close in September, um, early September, fully allocated the fund. So we hard capped the fund to 225 because Lindell was was able to get us to hard cap it at that. We originally went out for 175. Now we had momentum, so we could have raised more, but 225 right. was plenty. Um, and uh, we, I think we closed on about 165 because people were still in their processes. Mm -hmm. So we had to do a second close, but we'd fully allocated. One of those in that allocation was a $40 million piece to a, uh, a large, long-time um, uh, venture investor pension. Hmm. And about a few weeks, they were supposed to close in end of October. A few weeks after we did that first close, we got a call from them. Um, the number two guy who was our sponsor had left to go somewhere else. And mm. the senior guy who had been running this program for a long time decided he didn't want to do anything else in 2007. He was just done for the rest of the year, didn't want to do anything else because he needed to hire a new guy and that sort of thing. So all of a sudden we had like this $40 million commit go away, but we had had a lot of other people that wanted right. to participate. So we just went to the the group of them and ended up doing, I think, our final close in November, but it was more or less 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 front end and more working through the process with people. How do you how do you create momentum for these for these funds? I mean, that's I think the one of the biggest challenges for VCs on relatively, you know, fund numeral one, two, three, or whatever it is. Um, especially through the first 20, 30, 40% of the fund, like, do you have any pointer or two in terms of how do you create some of that early momentum? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's extremely hard. Um, I think it's mysterious. Yeah. Um, it's very different than a VC fundraise 
Um, because in a VC fundraise, you're often looking for a single lead investor. For, for a startup raising from right. a for, from investors. For company yes. raising. Yeah, right. Yeah, That's company right. Raising you're That's typically right. looking for that one lead investor. And right. I'm talking past the seed round. I'm talking, you know, when you're, when you're now doing, yep. uh, you know, a series A, series B, series C. You're not looking for one lead investor because you're really looking for 10 lead investors. Right. And there's a lot of communication between some LPs and sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad, unlike the VC dynamic where you don't want your yes. entrepreneurs, you don't want the potential leads to be talking to each other yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. There's a point at which they have to, but you want to manage that. Um, then there's a bunch of LPs who don't communicate. So you have these like different clouds of LPs. Yep. They're not all managing very effectively, you're trying to get them to commit. They're all on their own time frames. Yep. They've got their own processes. And you can't really do a close until you have a critical mass of them. So, you know, you can do a first close on, I mean, if you're really stretching at 33% of what you're trying to raise, mm -hmm. maybe 25% of what you're trying to raise. But if you want momentum, like that first close, like 50%, is is a threshold. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're raising a $100 million fund, you've got to get $50 million of commitments. Yep. If you're raising a $25 million fund, you kind of got to get $10 million of commitments. Yeah, you could close on five, but that's a totally different dynamic. And what you really need is activities or or I would say events that cause you to have more visibility with the LPs who have been talking to you over whatever period of time it is. And this is the long time cycle, right? So in Foundry's case, and I'll use Lindell as the example, when we raised our first fund, I met Lindell in uh, the end of summer of 2006 at a USV annual meeting. And uh, I was a personal investor in USV, so I went to their annual meeting. I knew I was gonna, I wanted, you know, Fred, I said to Fred, hey, can I come? Yeah, I meet some LPs. At dinner, Fred sat me next to Lindell. That was deliberate on his part. Mm -hmm. You know, within five minutes of <clears throat> starting to talk to Lindell, he looks at me and says, you know what, shut up. Let's just have fun and don't tell me about I your... I think he's told me that story, <laughs> yeah, actually. He, he, literally, yeah. he literally, we're like, talking, you know, yeah. uh, he's like, and, right. you know, you're meeting first person. He's like, you know what, shut up. I'm tired. Um, it's been a long day. Don't pitch me your fun. Don't pitch me your fun. <laughs> I will, I like Boulder. I have family in Boulder. Right. Um, Fred's told me I should spend time with you. I'll spend time with you. Like, you don't have to convince me to spend time yeah. with you. Let's have fun. Let's just hang out and drink and eat and talk about whatever. And we did. We had a great, I mean, it was a fun night. But it was really interesting that that setup. So I can't remember when that meeting was. But let's say it was June or July or maybe August. Um, we went to visit Lindell in October. So we hadn't really done the January. Now we've got our shit together. We're still in and we don't have our shit together mode. And we met with, with Lindell in October, and he, he didn't give us a sense one way or the other of whether he was interested. We had a fun time, a good meeting, right. interesting conversation, but we, we didn't really have any sense. And then, you know, he didn't really dive in with us aggressively until maybe March. Wow. And, but then he moved quickly. Like once he decided he was interested, and I'm sure it was another phone call from Fred that said, hey, mm. pay attention. Mm or something like that. In addition, while we were fundraising in 2007, we had a, a series of exits. So I like to say every fund that goes out to raise money has at least one problem. And many funds have multiple problems. 
in our case, our biggest problem, the most visible problem, which came back to us after the fact that we heard this way, was it was, it was Brad and the, basically Brad and the other guys. Right. So I had a track record. I had history. I'd been a GP in a fund or managing director in a fund. And then I had, you know, these other partners who were all smart, all capable. We'd all been working together since 2000. So it wasn't that we didn't have runway together. We had seven years of runway together. But this was their first time in a managing director role in the fund, with the exception of Jason, who'd been an MD at the the tail end of Mobius, last couple of years of Mobius. And um, so... Like that, that came up over and over again in different ways. And, you know, it's like, no, we're all equal partners because we started the fund as equal partners. It's not my fund. It's not the Brad show. Right. Um, right. And, you know, very deliberate firm construction. But, you know, that was the behind the scene chatter. And during the course of the summer, Ryan had two big exits. Postini got bought by Google for 10x. Mm. And Sling got bought by Dish for 5x. And Jason had a 10x exit, which was Stratify got bought by Iron Mountain. So all of a sudden, and you know, it wasn't that they got, I mean, you know, 1x, 1.5x, 2x, like 10x on significant money. I think we had, you know, uh, over 10 million in Postini. We had 10 million in Sling and we right. had over 10 million in Stratify, maybe 15 million in Stratify. Like it, these were big, wow. right. you know, big returns. And all of a sudden it was like, oh. These guys are legit. They're legit. So that, right. that was part of what built that momentum because it got rid of that one, mm. that one thing. We had lots of other issues. Oh, they're based in Boulder. What the fuck are they doing based in Boulder? Can you, you know, mm-hmm. and we weren't a regional fund, but we had to get our way through that. Um, we obviously had the Mobius history, which, you know, if somebody dug in, they could hear us talk about what we learned and what we're going to do different, what our strategy was. But if you looked at it and said, oh, they came from mm. this, mm. you know, eh, right? How do you think about information control amongst LPs when you're fundraising? Because presumably they all talk to each other. I think you mentioned sometimes that can be a really good thing and sometimes that can be a really bad thing. Yeah. Um, is there any strategy around that that you would recommend? Um, and if so, what have you maybe learned through the first through through raising venture funds in the past? Yeah, so I think it's um, it's hard to control information flow between LPs, and so in some sense, it's not worth trying to control it. Right. Uh, what's I think more important is to understand the networks of LPs, and so. Depending on what category of funds you are and who who you're raising and where you're playing, whether it's geography or stage or size or experience, there tend to be LPs who ha- are connected to each other because they've invested in similar types of funds and they like investing in those types of funds. The best way to find out that connective tissue is often to talk to other VCs right. about who their most active or early commit LPs are mm. and build a network that way. So in some sense, it's a different kind of dynamic than a CEO trying to raise from VCs where the CEO is trying to manage the information flow. Right. As a, as a GP, you don't try to manage the inf- information flow because you're not going to be able to. But you do work to understand all of the connective tissue between right. uh, the LPs. And 
you know, one other attribute of that is understanding which LPs are lead, uh, I don't want to say lead so much as leaders, right. and which ones are followers. So there's a lot of LPs, and being a follower as an LP is not pejorative. It's not a bad thing. Sure. There are a lot of LPs who do a lot of work, have a reputation for doing a lot of work, and when they commit to a fund, other LPs... Right increase the focus because an LP that they have a lot of respect for did a lot of work. It doesn't mean that they're not going to do the work, yep. but they tend to sequence differently. Yep. Some of it has to do with magnitude of capital. Some of it has to do with personal style. Some of it has to do with bandwidth, all that stuff. Understanding where the LP is in that mm. sequence is really useful. Mm. And I, I would say that very few, my experience, um, very few LPs will tell you that. Right. right, They're not talking about each other in that way, but VCs who have successfully raised funds from those LPs, if you have a good relationship with, will, will often be quick to talk about what the sequence was, who, who's really the ones that are going to validate yeah. for others. And, they, and so that means that during a fundraising process, they might help you to a certain extent, order some of those conversations. Yeah, it's not so much order, it's just know the expectation. Right, yeah. Right, if you're, if you're counting on an LP, you have no major LP commits yet, and you've got a bunch of good conversations going on, and you've, you've now got the magic decoder ring, so you know the difference between a first meeting and a second meeting, and mm-hmm. you know now you're actually in a real process versus mm-hmm. just you know, the foreplay of discussion, and you know the difference between that and uh, they've actually decided they probably are going to invest and are now doing diligence, and the difference between that and a site visit or having the consultant work with you. Like, you've got that sequence, which you guys are unveiling for people through this podcast and, and a few others. Then it's, okay, which of those firms are the ones that are going to be the first mover? And which of them are going to hang around? Because when a first mover says we're in, then that's when the game begins. Yep, right. yep. And so yep. It's, it's getting that sequence. By the way, you're going to want to talk to all of them continually. So you're not trying to sequence your conversations. You just right. sequence your expectations more than yep. anything else. Yep. So we obviously also wanted to dig into your history of investing in venture because you're a longtime investor in funds personally, and Foundry is also unusual in that it has been pretty public about investing in other funds as well. Uh, you mentioned earlier being a personal investor in in USV. Um, how did that initially happen? What were and what were the sort of primary reasons on the spectrum of you know supporting a friend versus purely financial versus you know strategic value of access to information? Yeah. So the the there's probably a couple of phases of how um, the fund investing activity happened. Um, my first venture fund investments uh, started back in the 90s. So um, I think I'm going to guess that the time frame was around 96, maybe even 95. Uh, I, the very first fund I invested in was uh, Highland Capital, hmm. um, their yeah. third fund. So whenever their third fund, whatever vintage it was, that was my very first one. The way that happened was when I lived in Boston, um, 
you know, I had I had built a company. Many of our clients in my first company were VC firms in Boston and a few in in New York in the Northeast and one or two in California. And we did a variety of different things for those firms, but I got to know some VCs in the late 80s and early 90s while I was running uh, my first fi- my first firm, Felt Technologies, because they were my clients. Um, after I sold my company, I started making all these angel investments. A few VCs um, started calling on me uh, at, to help them in diligence with companies right. that they were looking at investing. So, you know, I was uh, sort of, you know, Boston, MIT, uh, entrepreneur, nerd. And I'm sure some of it was not realizing at the time because I never thought about it from a founder perspective. But probably some of it was relationship development because I'd sold my company. I was in my late 20s. I'd probably do another company. This would be an entrepreneur they want to know. But um, uh, firms started asking me to invest in or inviting me to invest in their entrepreneurs fund. And Highland was the first that did it. Hmm. So many funds, many VC funds, have side funds for entrepreneurs. And they call them different things now, but in the 90s, they called, most of them called them entrepreneurs fund. Hmm. And so they were parallel vehicles. They were usually relatively small, you know, $5 million type size vehicles. They invested pro rata oh. with the main fund. <clears throat> so if the main fund was a, a $95 million fund, the firm had $100 million under management. The main fund invested 95, million, $0.95 cents of every dollar, and the entrepreneur's fund invested $0.05 cents of every dollar. So they were basically combined but separate vehicles. That's cool. And they often had reduced economics, so lower carrier, lower fee, because the idea was you get a bunch of entrepreneurs who invest in your side fund, and now they're connected to you in an economic way. Um, so I did a handful of those in the late 90s. Um, they turned out to be very lucrative. Timing was good again, like my angel investing because of the bubble, yeah. you know, pre-bubble dynamic in the run-up of the internet. Um, I uh, ended up having a similar dynamic. Uh, I talked earlier about the SoftBank relationship with Flatiron. Uh, in the Flatiron funds, Jerry and Fred let us invest in their right. side fund dynamic. So same kind of thing. And there are a few others. And these are small, these are like angel angel investments? I would say the vast majority of my commitments to these funds was $100,000. Right. Um, there were a few that were uh, up to a quarter of a million dollars. Okay. But my strategy, once I had a strategy, it took me a while to get a strategy, right. but kind of $100,000, that was an easy number. It was called down over time, ended up being lucrative. More money quickly came back than I put yep. out. That was good, so now I'm investing out of that. I made a conscious decision at some point that my dollar size, just like my angel investing strategy, where my dollar size was consistent, mm-hmm. I would have a consistent dollar size per fund, and 100000 was usually the minimum that people wanted. Sometimes mm-hmm. it was fifty, but that felt like a consistent dollar size. And my view was, I'll just once I start investing, I'll invest over the life of the fund, because I'd heard early from a VC who was some, a mentor of mine, you know, somebody that I, I got to know and listened to me, says, you know, you can't time it. So some funds are going to work really well, right. and some funds are not going to work as well. And the goal is not to time it, right? If you believe in the investor and you want to be an investor, you should invest over a long period of time. And I've carried that forward for for since yeah. that point. Yeah. Um, when I moved to Boulder, when I moved here in '95, um, this I'm now starting to do some of these investments. 
Um, there were a number of venture funds that got started in Boulder between 97 and, and 2000. And I was a new guy in town. And I decided that I wanted to be supportive of the local venture scene. And so most of these funds, I think almost actually all the funds, wanted more capital. Mm -hmm. They all had entrepreneurs' funds. So they were all happy for me to be an investor in their fund. And for me, it was a way to do a couple of things. One was be supportive of local ecosystem, get to know people better by being an investor rather than just, hey, let's have lunch. Um, it gave me a sense of what people were doing. So it gave me some... Um, uh, I don't want to say local market knowledge in an inappropriate way, but it gave me a sense of what was happening. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it made me have more of an emotional economic connection to the startup community because I had tiny investments in lots of companies. Right. So as I was getting to know people, you know, I'd spend time with people that I didn't have a direct investment in, but through my small investment in somebody else's fund where that fund had invested in, all of a sudden I owned, I like to say, I owned one one millionth of your company, <laughs> right? But I have, I have an economic reason to be helpful here. Yeah. And it, that, I think, influenced my overall behavior, which uh, you know, today I talk about in the context of both Foundry and Techstars and our philosophy, which is this notion of give first, right? Put energy into a system without having a transactional mm -hmm. relationship defined. You don't know what's gonna come back, but it's not altruism. You expect to get something back. You just don't know when, from whom, in what form, and what magnitude. I think philosophically, there's a lot of that in today's entrepreneurial world. Not excluding, no, not dominant, but there's a lot of it. And in places, again, like Techstars, I think that's the core philosophy. A lot of that came out of this dynamic, right? Where, yeah, I had an economic relationship, but my one one millionth wasn't going to make a difference really in my life. But somehow it felt good to be helping, and yeah. it made a positive reinforcement loop. So that continued, and it was a very steady pace of investing. And I didn't really think about it formally. I didn't really keep track of it as a portfolio. Um, you know, it, you can kind of get a sense of it uh, pretty quickly because of the stuff that comes back, it's easy to sort of say, wow, that was a good fund because one deal sends you back right. all your money. Right, that, that right, kind of right, right. And in, uh, in 2004, when uh, Fred raised, uh, the, and, and Brad raised the USV 2004 fund, um, you know, he invited a number, they invited a number of people they knew into the fund in the entre as entrepreneurs, uh, and I invested in, in that first fund. And I think that was the first time that I thought about it mm. as a more deliberate activity versus a random activity. Um, uh, 2004, we hadn't started Foundry yet. You know, right. uh, uh, internet investing and, and early stage seed and tech investing was still in the dumps. Right. Uh, and it was really, um, uh, in some ways, very satisfying and invigorating uh, to watch Fred and Brad right. start this new firm. Uh, in this period of time where, you know, everything was a mess. A, a mess. Yeah. Um, and what happened was as new firms started to get created, many of them being emerging managers, uh, you know, like us at Foundry, like USV, uh, True, yeah. firms that had experienced VCs that had been through the bubble that were now starting a next generation firm got started. Um, I invested in a bunch of them, and after we started Foundry, the four of us started investing individually in them, and then together um, uh, 
in an entity in them. And, you know, some of those firms uh, included, uh, you know, uh, the first first round fund yep. and then subsequently each of the first round funds. Uh, the first soft tech fund, you know, that Jeff did in each of the subsequent soft tech funds. Uh, Manu Kumar's first fund. So okay. there's, a, there's a consistency, right? Early stage, seed, people in our universe. Remember, we don't have to be the first check at Foundry, the first check in a company. So there's a little bit of, hey, this will, you know, we're closer to it. Uh, what people are doing. Some of it is these were just our friends. Right. And we, we both wanted to be supportive and frankly were honored that they were interested right. in us investing in them. When Jeff called me, Jeff Clavier called me and said, you know, would you be willing, interested in investing in, in soft tech? My answer was, yeah, fuck yeah. Right. You know, right. It, it was, Thank I think you're going right. to, you know, have great return. I want to have money in your fund. Yeah. It wasn't, Oh, I'm doing a friend a favor. It wasn't. Oh, I'm going to BLC his portfolio. It was. This is, you know, first and foremost, I think this is a good investment. And then all those other things followed. And very close in was the people, right? So the investment characteristic became sorted by: <clears throat> Do we think this is a, you know, do do we like these people? Do we? I should say a different way: Do we think these people are great investors? And do we like these people? Mm. And then there were a bunch of other things behind that. But that started to drive itself and, and pick up speed. And at some point, um, when Jason, Seth Ryan, and I were uh, all investing together, you know, we, we started to increase that velocity a lot, partly because there was an increase in the preponderance of early stage and right. seed funds, partly because we now had enough seasoning to be able to look back at some of the funds that we were in at the very beginning and see the return. So, and it, you know, USV is an easy example because right. everybody knows successful. You know, when Chris Saka called when he was raising his first lowercase fund, uh, you know, my answer was, of course I'd love to invest in you. Right. Uh, and good call. Good call, right? <laughs> good call. And if it was a bad call, it wouldn't have mattered that much in the grand scheme of my personal right. financial right. universe, right? Um, you know, we helped, we also then helped a number of people get their first fund raised. Yeah. So when David Cohen decided in 2009 to raise a fund to invest as an angel rather than just investing with his own money. Now that Techstars is going and, and starting to accelerate, it's like, you need a bigger pool of capital. Okay, well, let's put together a fund. And he raised his first fund. It was a $5 million fund. Right. And I don't know the amount that the four of us total, collectively put into it, but it was a decent chunk. But then we you know, referred a bunch of people in, and that fund's been extraordinarily right. successful and obviously then built a platform from um, uh, Paul Kodrowski and Eric Norlin. Eric runs um, some some conferences that we helped uh, him start, uh, Defrag and Glue. Yeah. Paul had been a longtime friend. Uh, Eric wanted to, you know, raise a fund. If you looked at the companies that went to his conferences mm. when they were young companies, before anybody knew about them, you know, Box, Atlassian, like just a list of companies where if you just invested in an index across right. all of the companies that were at the first three defrags, it had a great portfolio. You know, made some intros. I think Howard Morgan from First Round was an early investor. A couple of other people were early investors. So it's, it's sort of this dynamic of more is better, right? We want more people at that layer. Mm. An interesting thing happened, you know, in the 2000. 12, 13, 14 timeframe, right? In 2007, 2008, seed funds still didn't really exist very much. People were still very negative about venture. You can't make any money in tech right. and venture. Right. By 2010, that tune was changing. By 2012, 
Uh, all of a sudden, everybody was starting funds. By 2014, uh, all of a sudden, everybody that knew somebody was starting a fund, yep. right? And now you have, I don't know what the number of seed funds and pre-seed funds, but hundreds of them, right? Yep. So we saw this increased activity and we were investing in a lot, again, using this filter, right? Do we, do we fundamentally like these people? And a lot of people we didn't know, right? So we'd spend time with them and get to know them. A lot of people we knew, seed funds, early stage, in our world, uh, where we can be helpful to them, they can be helpful to us. And we started looking at it and realized, looking backward on the stuff that we'd done, it had been incredibly lucrative. Right. And, I, you know, when you, when you reflect on something with enough time, right, now we're going back almost, you know, 10, 15 years of, you know, you could say, okay, well, that first Highland Fund was very successful, sure. but that was a one-off. Well, all right, let's take 15 years of this stuff and let's go through, you know, the ups and downs and, you know, let's break it up in the different time frame. In 2004, is that a good starting point? Okay, let's start with that. Right. Um, what, what we realized was we enjoyed that a lot, partly because our whole world, you know, Seth, Jason, Ryan, and I uh, ab approach life very much from a network perspective. Right. Um, you know, the experience that we've had helping create Techstars and being involved in Techstars and now seeing what is a very, very broad network around the world of entrepreneurs who are linked to mentors, who are linked to investors. So it's very rewarding, not just financially. Yeah. And the same dynamic happens with people that we've invested in who have then gone off to build firms that have had lots of success, of which, you know, I, I don't, we don't take any credit for that as a meaningful investor uh, and, or anything other than as a friend. Like, we're happy if, if there was anything we did to be helpful along the way to any of the funds that we've invested in, awesome. Um. So to you know finish off the the investing and venture thread, the the full sort of evolution of that practice with going from your personal investing through bringing it into Foundry is now that you've just raised a fund dedicated to investing in funds called Foundry Next, and as you mentioned, you've added the first time you've added a partner to Foundry in its whole history since since you first raised it. And that's Lyndall Eakman, who was previously at Utemco, which is the Uni University of Texas endowment. Yep. Um, so, so can you talk a little bit about the decision to sort of fully institutionalize that practice and, and about, and, and, and about the, the challenge of bringing in a, a new partner, even though you've known him for a very long time? Yeah, so a handful of things happened at the same time. Uh, it was a couple years ago. Um, one is uh, the four of us saw the um, increased velocity of this kind of investing. Yep. And simultaneously, we saw how lucrative it had been or was being um, because of the returns that we had actually, the realized returns we generated from this investing. So the, the two things were happening simultaneously, right? One was more activity. Mm-hmm. And the other was, hmm, this, this has been a good investing dynamic. And then the third is, we liked it. Right. Right. We, we liked helping first-time uh, uh, funds. We liked having these long-term invested relationship with funds who people had become good friends over a period of time that also had this investment dynamic. Um, I would say that we... we 
under-optimized for information, hmm. right? In fact, we had, you know, the, the number of these relationships, we were no longer paing attention right. to more than the quarterly reports and what the companies were doing and what are right. see-through. Oh, I've got an investment in, we don't have an investment in Twilio directly, but I'm invested in uh, you know, uh, five funds that are invested in Twilio. Right. Huh, I wonder how much Twilio I have. Right. Right, right. I don't know. Right, right, but okay, I'm glad the stock's going up. That's good. That's like I can do that math. Up yeah. is better than down, right? Uh, so we, we had these things, but we weren't focusing on the information piece. Yeah. Um, and we were starting to talk internally about, gosh, we've got a lot of this stuff going on, and, and it's getting harder to make. We like to make decisions quickly, but we also like to be deliberate about it versus just random. Oh, nice. You have a pulse. Good to meet you. Here's $100,000. Um, and we said there might be a way to institutionalize right. this. So that was piece number one, or that was sort of chunk number one. Chunk number two is Lindell, who we had become, you know, both professional close friends, and you know, he was he he representing Utimco was a largest investor. Uh, we become very good personal friends. Yeah. Um, you know, he liked to spend some time up here. He had some family here. His wife, uh, Melissa, you know, and, and kids had come up here a couple of times. Individually, we had personal relationships. Um, he had gotten to know us well. And so he was starting a couple of years ago to think about what was next in his life. He'd been at Utimco for a, a decade plus. Yeah. And you know, the, the, the path forward for him, you know, he was you know, late 30s. You know, what, what do I want to do with the next phase of my career? And as friends, he started talking to us about that. Right. So it wasn't, hey, is there something we could do together? It was, Hey, you know, I'm in no rush. You know, I, I love you, Timco, but you know, I don't see that the next ten years of my life is this. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and, and so we had those conversations, and so these two things were happening in parallel. And I'd say that they happened in the, the sort of they were casual conversations for probably the better part of a year. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't anything deliberate about it. Mm -hmm. It was just interactions, and it wasn't scheduled or anything. It was just sort of random. One-offs, and there was a, a a discussion that we had internally, where it was you know the classic light bulb goes off, right? It's like you know, we had raised in 2013 a fund we call Foundry Group Select, yep, which was uh, or is a growth fund aimed at our existing portfolio. So the companies that we've done in the early stage funds that have been successful and have a growth opportunity, and for us it's not late stage; it's the um, you know hundred to you know, yep. $300 million type valuation zone where it's clear that they're working and now they're raising a, you know, 20 to $40 million financing um, that gets them to the next level where maybe they'll raise a pre-IPO round kind yep. of thing or they'll get bought. We'd raised that fund in 2013. Um, that fund was doing and is doing extremely well. Um, and in some ways, and, and USV pioneered this fund as well, their opportunity fund, I think they raised in 2008 yeah. or 10, yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. I think it was 10 because the second fund was 2008, so it must have been 2010. Um, you know, that fund, which was not just for their portfolio, but also for growth outside their portfolio, was the first of that type of fund. Right. I think we may be have been the first of the select type of fund, which is for your own portfolio only. Yep. And however, we'd had these experiences and we were starting to say, gosh, you know, there's a lot of companies from these earlier stage funds 
sorry, a lot of companies that were now growth companies that we'd seen earlier and passed on. But because they're not in our early right. stage funds, we can't invest. Or we're in funds and that then, you would invest in. And then we started to say, gosh, there are some funds in the, or some, some companies that, funds that we're investors in right. um, that are within our themes, right? So there are companies that we could have invested in mm. and we already have a connection to them. We already have a small personal investment in, but we're not doing anything proactively with it. It's right. totally reactive. And oh, by the way, for that category, if we're not already an investor directly from the early stage fund, from Select, we didn't have a mandate to invest in those companies. So that led us into the, aha, we have a way to t take these three things that we're doing mm -hmm. that are actually related and put them together, right? The Select type investing in our existing portfolio, the Select type or growth investing, but in companies outside our portfolio, but primarily companies that we have some connection to already, they fit in our theme, uh, a fund that we're an investor would be yeah. in. And then a category of institutionalizing all this direct fund investing we're doing. We don't want to be a fund of funds. That's not our strategy. Yeah. Right? Our strategy is that we're institutionalizing this thing we've been doing personally for a long time that does fit very tightly into the network we have, but creates more engagement with that network. And the four of us looked at each other and said, well, and the four of us can't do that. We don't have the bandwidth to do right. that. We, you know, we can't really like do that unless we added a person that that was their job. And the person who does that, who we have the most respect for on the planet and have known for over a decade and have deep personal relationship with is this guy named Lindell. Who's asking us what he should what do next. Do next right? right? So it was like all those things were yeah. sort of swirling around. We had this meeting uh, without Lindell, just the four of us sort of just talking about this. And right. I mentioned to you when we were, Having dinner, like every quarter we go away and we right. have a, a very focused day's agenda around portfolio and us and how we're doing. So it's not just the portfolio review and it's not just the buddy-buddy hangout. It's a very sort of, you know, what are the issues that we're dealing with? And in this conversation, we said, let's, let's talk to Lindell about this, see if he'd be even interested. Hmm. I have one last question and then we, we sure. got to let you run. I know you've, you've said in the past that you don't imagine Foundry becoming a multi-generational firm yep. or thinking about secession is, is more of a personal question. Is Foundry Next in some way a very long-term potential plan for you to think about the next thing one day, maybe spending more time as an LP than a VC? I, I think it's... Um, you clearly love that, that part of, yeah. of your job too. I, I, I think it's much less uh, much less definitive or clear right uh, in in that it's not a transitional dynamic right for for us um, and I'll, I'll speak for Seth Jason Ryan and I because of the conversation that led us there none of us have another career yeah um, we uh, have had this conversation multiple times we're committed to the idea that as we work, we work together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I got asked in diligence by an LP uh, a great question, and then one I'd never been asked for before. He said to me, uh, what's, you know, what's your next career after this? Right. right. You know, VCs do stuff after they're done being VCs. What's right. your next career? And I thought about it, and I, I hadn't ever been asked that question before. I'm 50, so 
you know, it's not an unreasonable question to ask in the context of, of life. And I said, well, I can really only think of two things. There, there's three things VCs do that I can think of that are next careers. One of them is to, you know, go and create another company and no interest in that. Um, I'm, I, I'm, not a, I'm not interested in being a CEO. I was a CEO in my 20s. Uh, I, I was good at it. I didn't like the job. Not going to do that again. Um, the other two are politics mm-hmm. uh, and academia. And uh, if you know me at all, I have the chance of me being in politics is 0.000 <laughs> with a repeating bar over 0%. I just... I have no tolerance, no interest. It's not anything I would ever imagine would be satisfying uh, in any way, shape, or form. And academia, um, I got kicked out of a PhD program when I was in my early 20s. Uh, A good badge of honor. Yeah, total badge of honor. Actively decided not to be uh, in academia as a professor. Um, I get to teach plenty in lots of different ways. Um, I'm... I get to write. I mean, I've written a bunch of books. I get right. to write whenever I want. Like, neither of those two things have any modicum of interest to me. I said, so, you know, rather than just say, oh, I don't have another career and give you a quick, you know, off the cuff answer, like, those are the only things I can think of, and they're not at all interesting. Hmm. And so I don't make the segmentation of, well, I'm trying to transition from being a VC to being an LP. Um, I've been a VC now for a long time. Uh, I've been an LP, albeit on a per-fund basis, modest dollars, aggregate, meaningful dollars. Um, And even in the context of what we're doing with uh, Foundry Group Next, we're not segmenting that. Right, right. Right? So um, when I say it's not as clear, we named it Foundry Group Next on purpose. Mm Mm-hmm. Because we thought that this was a very clear evolution right. <laughs> of how we were already investing yep. and institutionalizing and formalizing a set of things, some that we were doing with Select, some that we were doing personally, some that we weren't doing but felt like we should be doing, and do it in a way that was uh, scalable for a long period of time. Now, we wouldn't have done that and Lindell wouldn't have joined us if we didn't have a multi-fund view. Yep. Right? And yep. he wouldn't have decided his next thing for his career if we'd said, well, we'll try one fund and then we'll see. And, right. You know, may, so we have commitment that's, you know, a multi-fund commitment. So you could infer from that that, you know, we've, we've got a long path. You know, we have now uh, four uh, uh, early stage funds, uh, 07, 10, 13, and 16 yep. early stage fund. Right, we're you know we've got a long history of managing, uh, you know, forward managing of that. We know, so this is what we do. Brad, thank you so much. Thank we so really, much. really appreciate all the time you spent. Um, any founder um, and now VC would be would be very, very lucky to work with um, Foundry Group next. And uh, thank you so much for taking us out to pizza in Boulder, which. Uh, yeah, exactly, which we're not used to outside of Brooklyn. But, <laughs> but it was good pizza for anybody well, listening. It was. It was well, well, happy, happy to give you some good pizza yeah. and some ice cream. And yes. it, uh, it was awesome yes. spending time with you guys. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines. 
partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a pre-seed venture capital firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of an idea. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. We'd like to thank Silicon Valley Bank for sponsoring season two of Origins. At SVB, the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, its experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the Silicon Valley Bank team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you liked this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP. We'd also like to thank Ben Glawe, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound. 